The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. One of my guests today says that any leader should think of themselves as an elite athlete does. That's because elite athletes invest in every aspect of well-being, mental health, physical health, spiritual health, emotional health. The start of the new year has a lot of us thinking about performance, but I think that we need to look at performance in a much more holistic way than we normally do. And of course, I think that looking at performance through the lens of our mental health is really, really important. So I thought it would be a great time to revisit two of my favorite conversations with people deeply involved in the sports world and interested in mental health. First up, you'll hear my conversation with Toronto-based performance psychologist Alex Auerbach about how he views athletes' performance and how he helps athletes manage the connection between their mental and physical health. And then later in the show, I speak with former NFL star Ryan Mundy, who now runs a mental health startup called Alchemy Health. I just have to ask at the outset, You know, I feel like there's a stereotype that athletes might not be as in touch with their feelings as people in other professions, but I I intuitively feel like that's not true. What do you say about that? It's a really interesting hypothesis and maybe generalization we've made about athletes, I think in part because we see them do some really demanding physical things. They're sort of juggling pressure and these other circumstances that might feel overwhelming to people. But I actually think sport itself and playing the game is like one of the purest expressions of of emotion that we can see. And you see these flashes of really deep emotion, often in the heat of these competitions, right? A player makes a big shot and you see him or her scream. And that scream is sort of like a mixture of joy and relief and release and all sorts of other things. And so there's, there is a real deep connection to the emotion there, but you know, in the play and the back and forth of the competition, sometimes it's a little bit harder to pick it up. So I'm with you. I actually see athletes as being very attuned to their emotion. And I think the other dimension where that plays out, of course, is teamwork, right? The more connected you are to how you feel, the more connected you can be to how others feel, which is a, a critical part of performing well as a group and a coordinated group. Yeah, that sort of intuitively makes sense. And and we'll get into this, but obviously you have to manage emotion skillfully when you're in those high stakes scenarios. You know, we often think about or talk about controlling emotion. And I like your language of managing emotion a, a bit better. I mean, what we know now from a science perspective is your emotion is always present. You're always feeling something, right? Whether you have consciously labeled it and interpreted it or generated it into something 
that you can more tangibly feel like sadness or happiness or joy is a different story. But there's always some level of emotion to be managed or regulated. And what we know is that self-regulation is one of the hallmark skills that differentiates elite athletes from sub-elite athletes, in large part because they are able to direct their thinking, feeling, and physiology in ways that support high performance. And so obviously managing emotion in the heat of the moment is a really critical part of that. And some of that comes with doing tactical things like knowing what you're feeling and labeling your emotion, even if it's internal. Mm -hmm. And some of it comes from, you know, repeated skill and and practice managing emotion under pressure. Okay, first tell us, like, what do you do? What does it mean to be, well, for what do you even, what do you call yourself and what does your job look like? I'm a counseling and sports psychologist by training. I call myself a counseling psychologist or performance psychologist because I think performance psychology is a slightly broader umbrella than just sports psychology. And, and really, some of what I'm assisting with is performance on the court, and some of it is performance and mental health off the court. And so my role really looks like managing the full range of the human experience from mental performance, mental health standpoint. So that's everything from dealing with mental health concerns, uh, things like anxiety, depression, gambling, relationship issues, mm -hmm. all the way to optimal human performance and human flourishing. How do I get the most out of myself? How do I perform better at practice, perform better in a game, increase my confidence and live the best version of my life that I possibly can? And so it's a fun, really cool role where I get to see the full range of what it means to be a human. And my role is really to walk alongside these elite performers and help them reach their goals and fulfill their potential and get to where they want to go. You call them elite performers. I don't think I've heard it put that way, but their job is to perform always at 100%, is it not? It is. Is that realistic? Uh, yes and no. I think the way I've come to view it is you want to help them give 100% of whatever percent they have to give at any given moment. I think one of the things that's true of all elite performers, whether it's professional athletes or, you know, high performance knowledge workers, folks like lawyers or physicians or parents, you know, people who are dealing with an outcome that they really care about. They're not really ever at 100%, I don't think, once you get going into the thick of the season, right? The NBA, for example, has 82 games. It's highly unlikely that you're fully recharged 41 games into the season. You know, it's just, it's not realistic when you're playing a game every other night and those games last two to three hours and some might have overtime and some may not, and you've got travel and dealing with family and all these other things that, you know, are part and parcel of normal life. Mm. Being at hundred percent, I don't, think is always realistic. Of course, it's a great goal to have, right? We want to be the best version of ourselves and give ourselves the best chance to perform at 100%. But the reality is, you know, most people I think are operating between 80 and 85% most of the time. And then the goal is to give 100% of that 80 to 85%. And the performers who can do that most often are those that tend to win and rise to the top of their field. That's super interesting. So it's not like we always say where you sort of leave it all on the field and you you know you sort of magically get to 100%. What's the difference and how do you coach them to find that sort of 80% that they can give and then work with that? Like what's that process look like? That's a great question. I wish I had some really clear language to describe it for you. I I think for me it looks a lot like sort of returning to these wells of motivation, energy, interest, curiosity, excitement, novelty, right? The parts of human experience that 
generate energy for us Hmm. and seeing if we can keep those top of mind while we're also working on, you know, something that's motivating in terms of improving our core skill set or working towards some particular goal. So for example, we might be thinking about a goal for the season and maybe it's, you know, a particular shooting percentage or it's stepping into more of a leadership role. So we might keep that top of mind and think about how that's playing out on a day-to-day basis and how do we give a little bit of effort there. We might be talking about recovering from an injury. And so how do we give 100% of whatever it is that we have to give there, whether that's being a great teammate on the bench or giving effort for the two to four minutes you might play in a given night. There's all sorts of ways you kind of get creative with figuring out how do we tap into that, that energy while recognizing, you know, to your point, like giving 110% is, is not really a thing. Um, and, and I think in some ways pushing for that level of attainment, it's not to say we don't want people to work hard, but it is to say people sort of intuitively know that's not possible. And so it actually is like a disengaging way of thinking about it. Whereas I think people can more readily connect with this idea that like, I'm not always 100%, but I know what it looks like to give the best effort I can give right now. And that's really what we're after. It's kind of like the opposite of perfectionism in a way, right? Which is like, I'm just going to push myself so hard to an unattainable goal versus I'm going to pursue excellence and I've defined what excellence looks like for me. Yeah, I see it as an element of like adaptive perfectionism, maybe, Mm. where it's this idea that you are working toward being the best that you can possibly be. You are working toward doing things that are very tactically relevant in sport, like minimizing mistakes, right? I mean, that is a part of what it means to win a basketball game or a football game or do anything really that's performance related. Like part of high performance is minimizing mistakes, uh, which- Right, like you're a surgeon, you you don't make a mistake with someone's heart. A hundred percent, right? I mean, that that would be catastrophic. And so, of course, we're trying to do that as as much as we possibly can, but it's not about you know, yourself as a person being incomplete or imperfect or in some way not whole when a mistake does happen or when you lose a game. And I think that more adaptive framing does help these peak performers consistently give great effort, frame success in a way that's achievable and attainable and repeatable that maybe the way we traditionally think of perfectionism doesn't quite lend itself to. Yeah. Something I'm really curious about your take on and your work is something I think is probably really relevant to the audience. And of course, relevant to all humans, which is that, you know, we have stuff. <laughs> we may be in a fight with our partner. We may be, there may be family stress. Like we have stuff that impacts our mental health negatively, but we still have to show up at work and give that, you know, 85%. How do you work with players? on that and that duality of life? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And I I think about this often, both for, you know, myself, obviously, as a normal person Mm -hmm. showing up in a high performance environment. And of course, for our players, I think the first step to me is figuring out how to be present wherever you are with whatever you're doing. So I think one of the ways that life outside of sport, let's say in my example, right, life away from the game impacts or interferes with peak performance is by drawing attention out of the present moment Mm -hmm. and into a space where there's not really anything you can do with it right now, right? Like it doesn't help you in the fourth quarter of a basketball game to be thinking about a 
child at home who might be sick, right? Or a partner who's struggling with something or a family member who is dealing with another issue or a conflict that you have going on, because there's nothing you can do in that moment to address that or improve that. And so one of the places we start is in training presence, right? And the simplest way to do that is through something like meditation, where we know, you know, regular mindfulness practice, for example, does have some impact on our executive function and ability to direct attention. And we can see that at a brain structure level, which is really pretty cool. And so we start there. And then the rest of it is figuring out, you know, essentially boundaries, right? Like, how do we create a bit of a routine to sort of make transition between work and home easier or home and work, right? So it might be coming up with a simple way to write things down that you don't want to forget so that you know you can leave that in the car and walk into the building and be fully present with basketball for two and a half and three hours and then go back to whatever it is you're you're dealing with at life and vice versa, right? It's transitioning out of basketball and getting ready to go back to whatever you might be dealing with in normal life. So I think those would be the two elements I think about most is the presence element and then creating some routine around transition for yourself. And I think this is something that all people would do well to leverage more in their their life, I think, especially in the modern post-COVID era of (sighs) back-to-back Zoom meetings and work looking a lot like home and home looking a lot like work. And the two are like more blended than they've ever been. Having some routine to set yourself up for the right mindset to start working and to then transition out of work and into home life, I think are really pragmatic and valuable routines to establish that can help you be more present in both spaces. So for example, you know, I know some entrepreneurs or high-level executives who at the end of the day, they make their to-do list for the next day, they close their computer and they meditate for five minutes and that mm-hmm. becomes like the clean break from work. And then they leave their basement or wherever it is they've been working <laughs> and they go upstairs and interact with their family and are fully present there. And then, you know, the same thing happens the next morning, they sit down before they open their computer, they meditate for five minutes get themselves into the headspace for going to work and then pop in and try to be fully present with that. I think those little things can go a long way to helping people compartmentalize and live with this duality. How do we connect that present moment with motivation? Because I think that's the tricky thing, right? When you're anxious or you're stressed out or you're depressed, the motivation can feel far away. And so it's hard to get into the present. It's hard to tap into that motivation. That's a super interesting framing of it. Can can I ask you a question Please. first before? <laughs> so so I, I think it's really interesting to think about motivation being far away. So like, where did you adapt that concept from? Or where, how has that concept like manifested for you in a way that now it, it's so like obviously very prevalent in the way that you think about motivation and its presence or absence. But I think it's a pretty unique way of thinking about it. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I literally see motivation as a physical thing that I tap into to deal with my anxiety because I wouldn't get through the day sometimes if I couldn't. And I think also just really having looked at a lot of acceptance and commitment therapy and the idea of always having your values to come back to, that's the kind of the way that I look at motivation. But when I'm in my anxious mind, there's just so much noise. It's like it's like the motivation is literally far away. Or if I'm feeling depressed, it feels like I have to like trudge through cement to get to that motivation. Right where you know that feeling when you're in a peak performance mode, like the motivation's right there. It's mm-hmm. like you 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 and it are one. You are going <laughs> for it. But when you're not in great mental health, it's like it literally feels far away. I think it's a really crafty. I like it. I really like the way that you're you're describing it. And I guess 
A few things. I, I love that you're mentioning acceptance and commitment therapy. That's the modality I was, you know, primarily trained in. And so sort of like runs through most of my work. But one way I think about motivation that maybe resonates or, or maybe doesn't with what you're describing is I don't often think of motivation as lost, which I think is how people tend to frame it when they do feel like motivation is far away. They, they say things like, I have no motivation or I've lost motivation. And I often think of motivation as directed. And what I mean by that is when we feel like motivation is far away or like we've lost motivation, it might just be that we're more motivated to do something else. And so, you know, you can start to think about something like anxiety or depression or the thinking patterns associated with those two mental health concerns as your mind and body sort of like directing your motivation towards something that feels more pressing. And part of your responsibility is to sort of think through like whether or not that's in fact true right now or not, right? So for example, you could think of depression as kind of an adaptive response in the sense that it's getting you to slow down. And part of your your role is to figure out like what of that slowing down is related to things like a imbalance from working too much and what of that response is you know things like nutrition and self-care and what of that response is relationships you know all the things that make up this picture this mental health picture that we have and so when i would think about motivation being far away in that instance for example i think about being more motivated to rest right more motivated to rest and recover then i think about it as motivated to you know having to find the motivation to keep going and so i would use that i guess as a signal right like this motivation being far away is telling you something about what it is that you need right now and i would try to get curious about that so in the case of anxiety, it might be getting curious about, you know, what is drawing your attention to the future and whether or not that's something you can, in fact, control or influence right now and whether or not that's even something you need to deal with right now or if it's just, you know, your brain's sort of natural protective way of trying to keep you on the lookout for things that maybe you don't need to be on the lookout for. <laughs> and then, again, working with those acceptance and commitment therapy principles, figuring out how do we maybe diffuse from those thoughts and let go of some of that, return to our values, return to the present moment. And so I think, you know, those would be some of the things I'd, I'd think about in response to this idea of motivation being far away. I love your answer about bringing values into the here and now and thinking about what's really important. And I've been thinking a lot about kind of tangentially related to that, the idea of, of purpose or a central organizing principle for people. And I think, you know, sometimes those two get kind of conflated where we think about values as kind of like our you know, direction or the characteristics or qualities we want to embody regularly. I think of our purpose or central guiding theory as this sort of like big picture, what are we here for? And I think connecting with that regularly can often give us a, a little bit of the energy and the nudge we need to get going on something that's meaningful. And then importantly, it's recognizing that that meaningful thing that you're trying to be present for does not always have to be the biggest thing on your to-do list, right? Like if your central organizing principle is making mental health accessible for everyone, let's say, that doesn't mean that every day you have to do the exact same thing, right? You might only have energy some days to be fully present for, say, phoning a friend or sending an email. But those things count and, and we tend to minimize those things. And so that's, I guess, where I would push is toward the small, simple steps people can take to stack their wins in favor of being present more repeatedly, even if it doesn't feel like the big thing you should be present for. 
I was thinking about how just as different people are motivated by different things, I would imagine that different athletes, certainly at the professional level, are motivated by different things. Do you help them look backwards as well as in the present and forwards? Absolutely. I think looking backwards is one of the places we start when we're working with figuring out, you know, what motivates us or what drives us, or we're dealing with some performance slump or something like that, because it's one of the places where we can find why we started sport in the first place. You know, what was it that got us into this and why are we doing what we're doing? That pretty quickly becomes obscured when you're struggling. You know, you get really into problem solving mode, you get really into mitigating risk and minimizing mistakes. And in our terms, it'd be like playing not to lose versus playing to win. And I think we really want to stay playing to win as much as we possibly can. And part of that comes from being pretty deeply connected to why you're here and what your purpose is. And so, yes, we do look backward and think about you know, what was the origin story and how did you end up here? And was this always the goal? And what are you trying to accomplish with the platform you have? And then similarly to the future, like, what will this mean when you're done? And what's the legacy you want to leave? And how do you carry that out each and every day now? So that when you retire and you look back on your career in 20 or 30 years, you can be really proud of what you put on the floor and, and what you did outside of the arena to support the community and people you really care about. Do pro athletes get imposter syndrome? I think so. I think we all get we all get <laughs> imposter syndrome, you know, in our in our own ways. I think pro sports is such a unique place that you know you can like simultaneously feel like you've made it and like you're not there at all. You know, like if you get drafted <laughs> right. really early or you get drafted, you know, at all. Honestly, like there's a sense of having accomplished something huge that signals that you're now part of this really elite group of you know a little bit north of 400 people. Right, you're at the top. 1% of the 1% in the world at this particular thing. And yet you may or may not make the team. You may or may not have a long career. You may or may not play. And that can lead to a sense of imposter syndrome. And so it is a, an interesting dynamic to think about. But I think it, it reminds me a lot of when people are starting a new job and they sort of lose touch with how they got the job in the first place after they've gone through the interview process. People often forget that they were given the job because they demonstrated something valuable and they showed why they belonged here. And instead they get wrapped up in, you know, impressing people or whether or not they're doing a good enough job or do they fit in. And all of these, I think, are pretty normal human responses to a novel environment. Mm -hmm. You know, we're looking for signs of belonging, but it's in that process, we, we lose touch with the sort of qualities and skills and talents we demonstrated to get here in the first place. And, and there's, a balance there I think we have to try to find. At the same time, I, I was thinking about the Celtics' recent losing streak. And, you know, sometimes you start a new job and it's like you, you launch a product that fails. And how does your work help people play through the losing streak? I mean, when you're on game five of a losing streak and you're tired and you feel awful, like, what do you do? It's really hard. <laughs> it's, 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 it's really hard work. I think... Um, it's sort of paradoxical, but I actually think the way out of the slump in these situations is to try not to try so hard. Huh. And, you know, often people will be in a losing streak of whatever kind, right? A project failure or a product launch failure or a losing streak in the NBA or NFL or whatever sport it is. And the natural inclination is to just go harder. It's to keep pushing. Yeah. It's to squeeze tighter and tighter. 
And often in doing that, you know, literally in sport, right, your muscles are too tense to execute as efficiently as possible. Your brain is not primed to be looking for the things that needs to be looking for to operate as efficiently as possible. And as a result, you end up compounding the issues that you're experiencing by virtue of trying to give more effort, essentially. And so what we try to do is kind of relax into the effort that we can give and be as consistent with the fundamentals of our game plan as as humanly possible. So if we were to take that into the corporate space, let's say, it would be to not, you know, have a product launch failure and then immediately bulldoze full speed ahead into the next product launch and, you know, just go as hard as you possibly can and reduce your sleep and strip down your team members and try to go as lean as possible to get the new product out as quickly as possible to see if you can make up for it, right? Like that's a recipe for disaster. The the smarter thing- It's what a lot of people do. Exactly. It's the natural, (laughs) it's a very natural human response, right? Is like we feel embarrassed or ashamed. We feel disappointed. And one way that we think we can quickly resolve those quote unquote negative emotions is to just have a win. Basically, it's to just quickly turn something around. But Of course, like ironically in that process, we end up undermining our chances of success again. And so in the losing streak, whatever it is, it's to try not to try so hard and to return to, you know, the fundamentals of what got you to this position in the first place. The same thing would be true of an elite athlete as it would be of an elite executive or a parent. It's like you arrived here with some special set of skills that allows you to do this role at at a high level. And though this one project didn't work out or this one outcome didn't turn out the way that you wanted it to, the best thing you can do is to try again with the same skill set and maybe try a slightly different strategy or call in for some backup or some additional help if there's a particular failure point you can identify, but it's not to overdo it and uh, keep squeezing so tight. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. I would also imagine that there's much to learn for teams at work from teams in sports. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're traveling on a plane together. It's There's a lot of relationships involved. Do you have group sessions or do you just work individually with athletes? 
everywhere I've been, I think good working with the team is is a part of working with the individuals, if that makes any sense, yeah. right? And in the sport world, and like you said, in the corporate world, like teamwork now is just such a critical part of everything that we do that it's almost impossible to work effectively with an individual without having some understanding of the team and the team dynamic. And I'm a really big believer in the role environment plays in influencing behavior. I think it's something we've overlooked a lot in the field of psychology generally is we've, you know, historically been really focused on like an N of one and how we resolve really particular syndromes and not really looking at like structural or environmental issues. And that's starting to change. And I I won't get on that soapbox too much. No, that's a good soapbox. (laughs) You can get on that soapbox. (laughs) Well, I think, I think the the short answer to the question is, of course, I think, I think the teamwork is really important. And and some of the most fun I've, I've had in my career, whether it's here in professional sports or when I was working in elite college sport is having the opportunity to work with a group of players because it's a really unique experience to be spending time with people who have a shared goal and a shared vision, but also have unique personal values and motivations and characteristics that they bring to the table, some of which interact well and some of which don't interact so well. And you've got to kind of figure out like, how do you mold those pieces to fit together in service of that larger goal? And and that, I think, is a part of what it means to be an elite corporate team too, right? You're dealing with the same things. You're dealing with team members with different personalities and people who have different motivations and levels of engagement at work. And all those things still have to come into alignment for the team to deliver the best possible result. Right. Because we all know that you can be amazing at what you do but put you on the wrong team or if you're oil and vinegar with your mm-hmm. boss, right? Like you're not going to be amazing. Yeah. I think that's such an important insight, which is some of what I was getting at in the, the last few moments is this idea that, you know, your environment does have a really big impact on your performance and your environment can be kind of your work culture, organizational culture. Your environment can be your workplace setup. Your environment could be the actual city that you live in, right? There's all these layers to it. But ultimately, all of those things impact how we feel and as a result, how we perform. And so you've obviously heard a lot about things like psychological safety and trust in the last few years, particularly as teams have transitioned to remote work. And those same principles are true in sport, right? The best athletes, the best coach-athlete relationships you see tend to map onto the really high performing teams, you know, we heard a lot in the end of the Tom Brady and Bill Belichick saga, for example, to go to Boston sports about (laughs) some of the fracturing between those two, but there must've been some reality that their relationship was very effective for a really long time for them to win as many games as they did. That's not, it's not an accident. And so I think sports does show us exactly what's possible when you have you know, players who move to new teams and are immediately successful or immediately unsuccessful as a result of the change of environment. What I will say that I think is important for people to recognize and is one of the things I work a lot with, with all elite performers, not just athletes, is the idea that you as an individual can also shape your environment. And so I think sometimes we kind of take a back seat. Like we think of the environment as a place that we just walk into and it exists. You know, our work environment, our work culture is just here and I show up and that's the experience of the culture that I have. But the reality is like you as an individual, you contribute to that culture. You bring something to that workplace or to that environment that either facilitates or perpetuates the same dynamic continuing 
or could potentially slow this dynamic down. And we see this at a really young age in humans, right? Like one of the most simple examples to give is babies. And I have a 14, I guess she's a little older than that now, four-month-old daughter, 16-week-old daughter now. And babies do this shaping their environment almost immediately. <laughs> like they they cry and then mom and dad come running in and figure out what's going on and they they do the routine, right? They feed the baby, change the diaper, clothe the baby, and then you try to comfort the baby. But in a really like simplistic example, that is the baby shaping the environment, right? If the baby did not cry when she was hungry or upset, right? Then we would never know and then she would feel untended to. And vice versa, right? If she cried and we never responded, that would be problematic, but she would learn that crying doesn't get a response. And then she would try something else (laughs) to get us to respond. And so we see this kind of like construction of our environment from really, really early ages in humans. And it just kind of continues to evolve over time. And so I, I do try to encourage the performers that I work with to think about what ways they can make their environment work for them. So if you have a boss or a coach or a teammate that you struggle with, it's starting to think about how you put yourself in a position to manage that relationship most effectively. And it might be having the difficult conversation and airing whatever the problem is so that we can work through the conflict together and arrive at a good resolution. It might be withdrawing some and putting your energy into a new relationship that you think can ultimately further enhance your performance and help you. Mm. But there are lots of ways we can shape the environment to be more beneficial for us. I love that. It's funny to me, though, that I feel like the public gravitates often towards the diva or the, um, you know, the person who, frankly, does not seem like they'd be a great team member, but they become a star. Like, that must be a hard dynamic to manage when you're also trying to create a great team. To the point of being a star, you know, to make it to the NBA, of course, you would be a star in any other realm. Like, do you manage people's expectations around the fact that, like, they may be a great sixth man, like they may not be a quote star, but they can still have an amazing career. Yeah, I think part of all of our roles as support staff in sport, whether it's the sports psychologist or anyone that's not really the head coach or or lead management, is to help players figure out how to maximize their individual potential in the context of the current team. Mm. And so on most teams, there really can only be like one or two true stars, but that doesn't mean that you are not valuable. And I think that's where people tend to go sort of naturally is like, you know, if I'm not the number one player or in the starting five, then I'm inherently less worthy as a basketball player than the next group of five. And I think what you want to try to do is help people appreciate that they have a unique role that adds value to the overall team. And the way that you sort of help them think about it is like, we all win together, right? Like you see this time and again in professional sports, you see the backup quarterback or the sixth man sign a big contract because they've been part of a winning team. Mm -hmm. And so you've got some data that supports this idea, right? That just being part of a good team and playing your role really well will lead to also you having good experiences individually. But people often fear that, right? People are afraid that if they're not the star, they'll never max out, say, their contract value or their lifetime earnings. And it's maybe true that you won't earn as much as the true superstars in the NBA, 
But it's not necessarily true that you wouldn't earn the max that you could possibly earn in your career. And that's what you, I think, try to orient people toward is the idea of being the best version of themselves because there are only so many, let's say, seven foot plus players, right? There are only so many players that, you know, went to a blue blood school and had, you know, were drafted in the first five picks, which changes all your earning potential down the line, right? There's just these variables that you can't necessarily change or control that still influence your overall outcome. And so you want to try to orient a little bit away from that and back towards the things that will be one, most meaningful for them and two, most controllable or influenceable for them so that they can be the best that they can be. I love that. That's great advice for anyone who's feeling FOMO and watching someone else on LinkedIn get an award or something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, we're all running our own race, right? Like that's that's the goal. We're all running our own race. And the more people that I think do that, the more you'll find your own rewards too, right? The more you're focused on what's really meaningful for you, the more rewarding it'll feel. And uh, that LinkedIn award won't matter so much. <laughs> what do you take away that you've learned from the players and the athletes you've worked from that you apply in your own day-to-day life? The thing that I think most often I'm struck by and is a lesson that I find myself coming back to again and again is how well these athletes seem to just go about their business and do what they need to do without looking too far ahead into the future. So one of the things I'm personally guilty of is thinking about what could be next. You know, it's like, well, what if this happens or what if that happens? You're an anxious achiever, Alex. (laughs) I am. I am an anxious achiever and I'm okay with that. And I think that's probably served me well in some ways, but in other ways, it means that I also struggle with some of these elements of presence that we've talked about. And I find myself, you know, sort of like looking around and not being where I should be. And I'm always impressed with the players who manage to just show up every day and like their contracts running out in six months and they're not even worried about it right now. You know, it might play out in the back of their mind, but they show up every day, they give great effort, they try to play their best and then they do it again tomorrow. That level of commitment, the ability to like do repeatedly boring things, Mm -hmm. I think is incredibly impressive and is something that I have tried to lean into more and more. And honestly, it's something I've learned from them and I think have gotten better at, I would say in the last like four to six years has been being a little bit more present and in part just trusting that the hard work will lead to the good things. And so these these players at every level I've worked at, honestly, have this incredible ability to just fully kind of immerse themselves in the game, stay focused on that and fall in love with boredom and become excellent. And if I could figure out how to do that more often, I'd I'd be in a really good spot. I'd be a much better tennis player. That's for sure. (laughs) We'd all be better at whatever sport hobby (laughs) we have. That's for sure. Uh, And better at life too. Next, my conversation with professional football player Ryan Mundy. He played eight seasons in the NFL, including with the Pittsburgh Steelers, where he won a Super Bowl, and Pittsburgh is his hometown. He went on to become an investor and now runs Alchemy Health, an online platform to help eliminate health disparities in the Black community. I started by asking Ryan about when and why he decided to walk away from the NFL. I left because I was injured. Mm. principally, but I think my body 
was telling me something. I played football for 24 years in total. I started playing football when I was seven and I didn't stop until I was 31. That's a long time to do anything, but particularly running into people <laughs> during that time. And uh, I just got into a space, I think from a physical standpoint, where when you're over 30 in the NFL, that's like, quote, over the hill a little bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I had an injury, uh, back injury to be specific, that took me out for the 2015 season. Being injured, having a back injury, being over 30, your body is just different. And then subsequently, I started to have different thoughts about the game. And I distinctly remember one point in time where I was watching a play and I said, wow, that looks like it hurts. And I had never said that about anything related to football. You know, the, the violence of the game was very natural to me. But my mindset and my approach to the game started to shift drastically. And I always knew that once you, quote, started to, I guess, check out mentally, it's really, really hard to commit to the game and what it takes on a daily basis to be a professional athlete. And so that was like kind of the genesis. You know, I committed my life to the game and it did a lot of great things for me, but I was at the end of the road and I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know how to manage that. I wanted to walk away from the game on my own terms. I didn't want anybody to tell me like, hey, you're no longer welcome here. Mm. And, and so all that context during the 2016 offseason, I just said, I'm done with football. I would imagine you went through some sort of a grieving period. I mean, I would imagine also that like since you were seven, this was your probably your whole life and then to lose it. Yeah. <sighs> and what did I think about things like I'm probably not even on this call had I not played football. Right. So the subsequent uh, all the events that happened during that time period got me to this point. My education came because I played football. My financial status became because of like house, all these things, I could draw a line back to football. And when you no longer are able to do that at the young age of 31, it is a massive, massive, massive blow to you. I was always trying to fancy myself as like, hey, I'm more than an athlete. You know, I want to explore opportunities outside of football. And I was doing this while I was active NFL athlete. So I was doing like educational programs at schools like Wharton, Notre Dame. I even got my MBA at the University of Miami, Florida, all while I was an active NFL athlete, pre preparing for the day of which like I'm no longer an athlete. But even still with all that preparation and education, man, I got hit with a ton of bricks when I was done. Were you depressed? Absolutely. Depressed and also dealing with a ton of anxiety, right? And the way that I look at depression and anxiety is like past and future. The depression was coming from like, look, again, I built my whole life around this and I no longer can do that. Woe is me. How do I deal with that? How do I move forward? Anxiety comes from, I'm no longer doing what I used to do. What am I going to do next? I have no idea what to do, right? So dealing with both of those, uh, trying to reconcile with the past, but then also looking forward and saying like, man, I don't even know what the future holds for me right now. I can't tackle people anymore. <laughs> I can't physically tackle people anymore. No, for real. That's, that's what the, <laughs> that was my job, to tackle people. I have a question. It's kind of a sidebar, but when that's your job, do you feel like your approach to anger is different? Like you sort of have a natural physical outlet for anger and a lot of those emotions. And, and do you think that changes you as a person or how you manage emotions? Yes. 
you have to learn how to not let them control you, not let them overtake you, not let them take you uh, off the course of the desired goal or outcome. Yeah. A really like micro example, but a relevant example would be like, think about like, there's a lot of plays that happen during a football game. If I have one bad play, I can't sit in sorrow and say, oh man, I had a really bad play. Why? Because I have another play coming up immediately after that. Right. And the guy across from me is looking to either, you know, get by me, score a touchdown, whatever it is. So I have to quickly like move on and not always try to get too attached to what happened previously. Mm-hmm. That's a great skill for life, though. It is. So was mental health something you ever struggled with before that moment at 31 when you left football? Nope. Hmm. Nope, nope, nope. Didn't even know what it was. Didn't have a high degree of awareness or emotional intelligence as it relates to like how I'm feeling on the inside. And and then also from like the macro environment, like those conversations just weren't had. Mm. They're not had in that fashion that they're having, that they're being had now. Like there was no podcast about it. There was no social media post of it. There was none of that. There was no business around it. There was no alchemy health. Hmm. And so like the education and awareness around like mental and emotional health was not on my radar. And I think that's uh, even when I was dealing with what I was dealing with in 2016, like it was still a very different landscape. It just wasn't on my radar, but I knew something was wrong and something was very wrong at that point. But leading up into that point, I just had no experience with it. So you knew something was wrong Mm -hmm. and now you work in mental health. Like, what was that evolution? Did you go see a doctor and and the doctor said, I think you're depressed? Like, how did you get from A to B and then now where you are today? Yeah. During that time of, of injury or contemplation of like retirement, after that 2015 season, like the winter of 2016 and the spring of 2016, I just, I knew I needed help outside of myself. Again, I was physically hurt. I was emotionally hurt and I didn't know what to do. And I just went to Google and said like, look, I need help outside of myself, but I don't know what that looks like. Researched various sports psychologists in the area. And all of those were very, very bad experiences, to be honest with you. Really? Yeah. It was not, it was not a good experience for me at you know, I would get in there and people would be talking to me. And I'm in the context for those conversations was around like, look, I'm trying to figure out like what I should be doing with my life right now. I don't know what I want. I don't know who I am outside of football, all these things. And it was just rubbing me the wrong way. And I didn't feel a connection to the professional that I was sitting in front of. And so like, even with that, when I wasn't connected to that person, like the slightest of questions would rub me the wrong way. So you asking me about like, well, you know, how much money would you make if you went went back? Like, that's not a deciding factor for me. You know what I mean? Like someone actually asked you that? 100% asked me that. This was a mental health professional? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's what I was dealing with. You know, like I've made money and I don't I'm not playing football. That's not my driver here. Right. Or that's not like the reason why I would go back and play football. Let's put it that way. And uh, yeah, it was just high degrees of like insensitivity. And I looked at in, in reflection, I looked at it, said like, well, why is that? And I came to the table with two big identities, right? Being an athlete and being a black man and working through both of those at the same time felt impossible during that time period. 
and I went through several different professionals, finally got to the right landing spot, but it took so much time, effort, perseverance, and energy. Yeah, it was just, it was a bad experience for me. Were the therapists you saw initially all white? Yes. Yeah. Do you think that's a piece of it? Yes. I mean, data supports it. Yes, absolutely. It was a piece of it, for sure. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, I, I think uh, when we talk about what we do at Alchemy, like, we now know, backed by data, that our community, the Black community, and also people of color, like, that's the starting point. Like, look, if I'm going to talk to somebody, I need to, their background, not only from a credential and professional experience, but like life experiences matters. Mm-hmm. Because in those contexts, like, I don't want to have to get in a chair and have to explain what it means to be a black man or what it means to be a black athlete. So, yeah, I do think that was a big part of it. So it sounds like all those bad experiences and then ending in a right experience spurred you on. How did you know that that right experience was right for you and and what happened when it was right? Yeah, I just started to feel different noticeably on the inside, but then also with how I was engaging with those who were around me and the relationships in my life. I started to see noticeable improvements and changes there. And that was a huge sign for me because I was just kind of walking around an illustrative example, like a zombie, like didn't know what to do, didn't know where I was going. I was highly, highly active. And that's one thing about me. Like I've always been like high functioning, Mm -hmm. but, and you would never know, like I'm going through what I'm going through on the inside. Externally, like I was out in the world, you know, making startup investments, networking, going across the country, all these conferences. You'd have looked at me and said, like, damn, Ryan, you're crushing it in life after football. But on the inside, I was struggling. And to answer your question again, it was just like more so around like the direct relationships that I had with my family, how I was feeling on the inside that ultimately started to turn a curve for me. But it was a degree of ownership because I was feeling sorry for myself a lot, too. But I really had to find like my groove as it relates to like, who is Ryan Mundy when he is no longer an athlete? And how is he taking care of himself? What does his routine look like? How is his relation? All these things I had to kind of like right size or get back into place for this next chapter of my life. Let's talk about routine for a second, because I think routine is really, really important when you're managing depression and anxiety and you lost a routine that I would imagine felt like home for you, right? When you're an NFL player, when you're a professional athlete, even when you're a serious high school and college athlete, like routine is probably everything. Absolutely. I didn't realize it at the time or how much I was dependent on it. But, Mm -hmm. you know, as an athlete, like your whole life is planned pretty much. (laughs) And (laughs) you just kind of just show up, right? (laughs) Uh, You don't have to think about like the scheduling, the organization of your time how to best utilize it. Somebody else is doing that and you just follow the schedule. And when that rug is pulled from under you and you no longer have somebody doing that for you, it's like, oh, you know, like, what do you mean? I got to do this on my own now? I have to create my own routine. Like, you know, I have to do all these things. That I think was a really, really important part of the equation as it relates to like kind of getting back to self and uh, moving forward. How did you start to put that together again? I just looked at what worked for me in the past, you know, like what made me feel alive? When was Ryan Mundy at his best? And what are the elements that I could pull forward from that? Because again, everything wasn't great during that time, right? There were things that I didn't like. There were things that hurt me, so on and so forth. But I was trying to find the things that I could pull with me forward 
to to help maintain that. Like what? Working out. Mm-hmm. I always thought that like I would never not be in the gym, but there was a period of time, years almost, where I was like, man, I hate the gym. It's a struggle to work out. I don't want to go, you know, and I never thought that that would be me. Why? Because I had been doing, going to the gym my entire life. Like I know exactly what to do in the gym each and every time, but there, <laughs> I got to a point where I, I didn't feel like it. I didn't want to do it. I was working out every day for 24 years. Right. <laughs> and so <laughs> when you go from that and like getting massages twice a week, I mean, the whole nine and just using all this high technology, fancy equipment. And then you go from that to not doing anything. Boy, that is the pendulum has swung all the way in the other direction. And not only was that affecting me physically, you know, I lost man almost 25 pounds. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And I was a big guy back then, right? I was a big muscular guy, but I was 215 at my max and I got down to like 185 and it was an unhealthy 185, right? Like people talk about, no, I was not in a good space. Why? Because I wasn't taking good care of myself. Yep. Why? Because I was depressed and I was anxious, all these other things, right? And so finding myself in, in the routines in, in which I was the best version of myself to date mm-hmm. was really important to me. And it was oriented around working out, diet, hydration, and all these things that I know how to do. Like I know better. Why am I not doing these things? I really had to sit down with myself and, and have that moment. What about therapy and medication? I didn't go into like traditional medication during my time as a professional athlete like I had never consumed cannabis but it's legal here in Illinois and I thought okay well let me read up on some of these benefits see if it works for me so from a medication standpoint I got on like a cannabis routine that kind of helped ease some angst anxiety Mm -hmm, etc and from a therapy standpoint I really I continued to see professionals in different like spaces with different expertise, but it was really like I took a high degree of just like ownership on myself for like learning and exploration. Like I'm a wanderer. I like to get out there, figure things out. And that was really, really what helped me, particularly this book called The Power of Now. Hmm. Eckhart Tolle? Yeah, it was life changing, like quite literally life changing for me. It's a book that I studied to date and really try to implement into my life as a practice. Like I'm not consuming a bunch of information or reading a ton of books. I'm just reading that and I'm studying that. That's how important it was for me to like apply those principles um, to kind of help me move forward and navigate life in this new phase. So what is your new phase? What are you doing now? Yeah. uh, So now I run a uh, health and wellness startup called Alchemy. And we are a digital mental health and wellness platform specifically designed for Black culture. We create tools, information, resources that show up in the form of mental health video courses, mindfulness practices, and meditations, and also host live group experiences on our platform. And the genesis of the company, again, was spurred by my life experiences, but particularly that time when I was talking about where I was searching for something. Yes, I needed in-person help, but I wasn't always in front of the therapist. And again, like I was always wandering, searching like, hmm, where's an app that I could use? Where's some tools? Where's some resources that speak to me? I didn't see any of those. And again, we never had those conversations in our community, in my house, et cetera. And so I quickly realized like there's just an awareness and an education gap uh, for folks who look like me. And particularly during my time, I couldn't buy my way to help. And so I'm sitting here saying like, look, 
if I'm financially in a good spot and I can't get the resources that I need, then what's going on with folks in the south and west side of Chicago, north side of Pittsburgh, east side of Detroit, right? And that's where all my family is. And it was at this time, too, my family was just going through a laundry list of chronic disease and illness, type 2 diabetes amputations, cardiovascular disease, heart attack and stroke, the list goes on and on. And this was all happening while I was dealing with the issues that I was dealing with on the inside. So I briefly mentioned that um, I was in the investment space, the startup space. And so I was aware, like, okay, venture capital, startups get funded, they get money. And I was seeing things get funded. I was like, okay, that's cool, that's cool. But I don't see anybody solving my problem or my family's problem. And I deem that to be a very, very big issue. And, you know, I just got the gusto in 2020 to say, like, look, I'm going to start this company and I'm going to create generational help. Why? Because I don't see anybody else doing it in the way that I think it should be done. So that's the the genesis of Valkyrie. I just want to close out here by asking you what you're most proud of about alchemy. What gap you think it's filling that makes you really proud of this work? What I'm most proud about, and and there's different answers for for both of those questions. Okay. What I'm most proud about is doing it, Mm -hmm. quite literally taking an idea that I had in my brain I'm going to do this. That's incredibly terrifying, scary. But the the simple art is in the start uh, and the power of the start and just saying, like, look, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm very, very proud of that because it is a big, ambitious goal. And I'm walking around saying, I want to create generational health for black culture. And I want to see a world in which black health disparities are non-existent. I don't know a lot of people walking around saying that. And so that in and of itself, I am very, very proud that I'm on that path uh, day in and day out. And that translates to the response of the community. I knew this was an important initiative, but each and every day I go to our, our platform and I read comments that people leave on our content. And each and every time I do that, it warms my heart and it will never, ever, ever ever get old <laughs> you know just thank god for alchemy and like i've prayed for something like this i mean the list goes on and on and on and on and on and so that's uh that's what i'm most proud of the gap that we feel in the space from like a opportunity perspective is what we're what we're doing here at alchemy is we're building trust and relationship with a community that has been underserved under research mistreated abused you name it for 400 plus years and principally, that's the reason why our community is at an outsized risk for every chronic disease and illness in the book is because, quite frankly, our community does not trust the healthcare system and particularly the mental health care system. And so we take the approach of like, look, we need to build trust. We need to build relationship. And ultimately, by doing that, we will improve health outcomes and mental health outcomes. And so that's a gap that we're solving for. And we are we are really, really proud of the work that we do day in and day out. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.